Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor James Morton. This is the new Science in Sport podcast where we unpick a topic within sports and nutrition with an athlete and a sports scientist. Science in Sport is the world's leading sports nutrition brand that is fueled by science and trusted by athletes. And we hope that with this podcast, we give you all the insights, tips and tricks that our favourite athletes apply to their training. In this episode, we're going to be talking to boxer Carl Frampton and Professor Stuart Phillips to discuss all things protein. It's a nutrient that I think has so much misinformation around it. So I'm really glad that we're going to be looking at the actual truth and its importance. James, why is it something that seems to have so many myths around it? Yes, you're absolutely right, Charlie. I think a lot of people traditionally associate protein with strength athletes and that we only need protein if we want to grow big muscles. But of course, we now know that anyone who engages in physical activity and exercise would definitely benefit from consuming more protein in the diet. Not only do we need it to grow muscle, but we also need it to maintain muscle throughout our life, actually. James, also, I know that we're both quite big boxing fans. So we were both like, Carl, it'd be great for this because I think it's really interesting the insight behind a boxer's training too. Yeah, well, I I think boxing is a great example of what you can actually achieve in an eight to 12 week period, like a traditional boxer's training camp. On the last episode, we heard from Garin Thomas. And of course, he's training for the Tour de France over a six month period. But a fighter like Carl, he's training for 12 weeks for a world title fight. And the, the changes in boxers' body composition over that time period is nothing sort of remarkable. So I'm always amazed by how, how fit they get themselves in such a short period of time. Me too, James. Let's bring in Carl then. Carl Frampton is a two-weight world champion boxer and being from Belfast, much like you, James, he has that never give up mentality, which you can really see in the ring. He gives absolutely everything. Due to the nature of his sport, Carl has a wealth of experience in having to make weight and so fueling correctly and strategically is something that's paramount to his performance. We wanted to speak to Carl before his upcoming fight about his nutrition, how he prepares to make weight ahead of a fight, and of course, we want to know what we can learn from Carl in order to understand how we can use protein and clever nutrition hacks to meet our own goals. Carl, you're in training at the moment ahead of your WBO World Title fight against Jamal Herring. So how long have you been in camp at the moment and how long is this camp? Because I know you had a bit of an injury. Yeah, uh, oh, it's been a long one, longer than most. It's been it's been broken up with a few different things. First of all, I thought the first date we were given was the end of January. So I was training towards that right up over Christmas. And then it was the 27th of February. Um, and now it is the 3rd of April. So... I don't, I don't really know how long I've been training, probably about 14 weeks now, but that's not 14 weeks pedal to the metal. It's been taking it easy and, and, and it's probably allowed me to make weight easier. Just the, the camp's been, the camp's been longer and I've been, I haven't, in between the little breaks, I wasn't, I wasn't allowing myself to balloon up or anything. Yeah. So when you first went into that training camp, because boxers can get themselves into this like incredible shape and in, normally it's around eight to 12 weeks. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I like a 12 week camp. Yeah. Carl, is that because you like more time to be able to make weight? Yeah, well, I think so. It's not that making weight now at super weight isn't isn't too much of a struggle for me, to be honest. Um, but when I started my career, I was a I was a super bantamweight, so I was having to get down to eight stone ten uh, or one hundred and twenty two pounds, which was which was difficult for me to do. So twelve weeks is always what I've done, and I just didn't want to change things even even going up through the weights i just, I just it's worked for me, so I just continue to do that 
So Carl, just to give some context about, you, you mentioned super bantam weight, so maybe we'll start there. That's around 55 kilograms. And then you went yeah. to featherweight and then you're now super featherweight, which is 59 kilograms. So that's a four kilogram uh, difference. What are you more yeah. comfortable at? I feel like I'm more comfortable at this weight, at super featherweight. I, I feel like as I've got older, it, it, it was becoming increasingly more difficult to, to make weight. Um, I grew out of the super bantamweight division after I unified against Scott Quigg. To be honest, I probably grew out of it before that, and I was killing myself to do the weight, and there was a few big fights there, the Quigg fight in particular. So I, I, I stayed at the weight longer than I should have. I moved to featherweight, and I'm, I'm really comfortable now at, at, at super featherweight. Right now, I, I just jumped on the scales today. Um, I'm, I'm 10 pounds overweight with more than about just under five weeks, which is absolutely ideal for me so uh, I'm comfortable at this weight. James I wonder maybe if you could come in because you've worked with Derry Matthews and in boxing what is important in terms of when a boxer knows when to be the right weight? Yeah well actually Derry was the the first athlete that I ever worked with come to think of it who's went on to be a good friend of mine I know you know Derry as well Carl Um, and the first time I worked with Derry Charlie he was he just lost his WBU world title and he was trying to make featherweight, which is 57 kilograms. And I remember scanning him for his body fat and muscle mass levels. And I was amazed that he was still making featherweight. And I said to him back then, you know, Derry, at some point in your career, you'll probably grow into a lightweight. And I'm pretty sure that you'll enjoy being lightweight more than featherweight. And of course, he thought I was mad. And that's that's what happened. And I think the same is what's happening now with Carl. He said he's, he's outgrown that earlier weight. And I think a lot of fighters, once they learn that they can't make the same weight they could make when they were coming through and just turned over, I think they enjoy their career a little bit more, Carl, and they start to enjoy training more, training for boxing rather than training for making weight. Yeah, and that's the exact same situation that I'm in. I, I, I can, I, I literally, when I was making super bantam weight, I, I don't ever think that I ate breakfast. I, I wouldn't have had breakfast. I'd always my first session was always on an empty stomach. Now I'm just I'm never really that hungry anymore. Like I, I'm doing it properly and, and I'm not I'm not having the I'm not laying in bed looking forward to the next meal, you know, and the day after. So it's it's just much it's just much more enjoyable for me and and easier as well. I, you know, I, I have a I have a big mate, Stevie Ward, who talks about this. So he's he was Light heavyweight, absolutely killing himself to do it. I, I don't really know how he made it, if I'm, if I'm being honest. And now he's went up to cruiserweight. So between light heavyweight and cruiserweight, that's the biggest jump in weight um, in boxing. 25 pounds, I think. So he's literally eating what he wants. Not eating what he wants, eating good, clean food. Um, but as a, as a light heavyweight, he was eating less than I was eating to make super featherweight, which is insane, really. So... Yeah, it's just it's just much more enjoyable and, and easier. And I know what breakfast is like. Um, I want to pick up on this because I had a chat with James about some of the things maybe we could take from your training in our everyday lives. So in terms of the breakfast thing, James, should you not eat breakfast and go and train or do some exercise if you're looking for weight loss? Well, that really depends on what the session is all about, Charlie, and, and your own structure. There is some research coming out in the last 10 years or so showing that actually having breakfast after training could be a good thing for, for getting fitter, if you like, which of course is what a lot of boxers do anyway. 
But the problem with that is that you might not be able to train at the same intensity and then your training intensity suffers. Now, I think in Carl's situation, what's great for him is he's now able to probably train better, Carl. Would you say you're training, training better? Absolutely. I remember when I was making 8 stone 10 or super bantamweight, constantly having light heads because I was on these extreme diets. I used to do like paleo diets and stuff and very little carbs and it was all it was all wrong what I was doing. But I, I kind of had to do it to make the weight and well, I felt like I had to do it and that was the advice I was getting at the time to make the weight. But now I'm able definitely able to train harder. I don't have to... I don't have to have naps during the day, which I used to have as a super bantamweight. I used to be tired constantly. So my energy is is up at the minute and I'm feeling good. Um, I still at times, depending on the session, just like you mentioned, like if, if I have an easier session in the morning, I, I would often train on an empty stomach and then have my first meal after that. But if I'm sparring or doing something with any sort of intensity, then I, I always make sure I'm, I'm well well fueled up. So could you take us through a typical day and what you would eat and the type of training you would do? I know it must vary depending on whether you're having intense sparring yeah. or not. Okay, so, well, I will, we'll go on a hard day. So normally I, I do my first session. If it's a hard day, a sparring session for, or a sparring day, for example, I would spar around 11 a.m. So I'd get up whatever time, 8 o'clock, 8.30. I'd have my breakfast. I would eat my breakfast. I would go to the gym. I maybe have a coffee as well. I would go to the gym, um, do my intense workout. I'd recover after that um, with with food rather than protein shakes. I don't really like taking protein shakes, if I'm being honest. So I go straight back home and, and, and like to have proper food. The second session of that day would be would be easier. It would be maybe a 6K jog. Um, I don't like to do two hard sessions back to back. So I'd be eating three meals a day, um, spaced out over about four hours with maybe a snack of uh, like berries or a high protein yogurt, something like that. Well, I'll be lying, I'll be in my bed kind of half 10, 10 30, and I'd be, I'd definitely be going to sleep before 12 anyway. And in terms of like intake food wise, what would that be? So at the start of a camp, I would do an RMR, um, rest and metabolic rate, I think, um, test. And, uh, and I think from that, them results, I, can, I take in about 1,800 calories a day during camp. You know, if I'm, if I'm eating about 1,800 calories a day plus training, then I'm losing weight because I, I'm consuming less calories than I'm working. I'm working for more. So um, that's about, it would be spaced out. So I'm trying to hit... There's always protein goals. Marcus Hannon, who's my nutritionist, and James knows him, is talking about hitting their protein targets, you know, as much as possible. So my protein target is, I think, two grams of protein per kilo. So about 130 grams of protein per day is what is what I'm trying to hit. So James, talk us through protein markers then. No, I think a lot of athletes in the past probably underappreciated what protein actually does. But in Carl's context, he's trying to make weight, but he's not trying to lose muscle. He's trying to retain the muscle that he has. And the way to do that is to increase the amount of protein that you consume. What's also good that Carl picked up on, and I think a lot of our listeners should relate to this, is is rather than um, spreading that protein out, the typical population has our biggest meal of of the day at dinner time. We have a little breakfast, a slightly bigger lunch, and then an even bigger dinner. What Carl seems to be doing, which is correct, is spreading that protein intake 
throughout the day. So it's equal portions of breakfast, equal at lunch and then equal at dinner. And then it, with the snacks is what he said as well. So I think there's there's a lot of good stuff that Carl's already doing and that's why he's finding it easy, this camp, I would say. And Carl, how much in protein did you say for the, for the day? Hundred and About 130 30 grams, which is two grams per kilo of body weight. That kind of me starting camp, yeah. So James, can you translate that in what? somebody would do if they wanted to improve their performance um and their you know strength and maybe weight loss in terms of that how can we relate that from a professional boxer that's going for a world title fight shortly to the me type well i think it's actually the same charlie um so those amounts that cards mentioned around two grams per kilogram you and i could be doing the same for our own body weight so for instance i'm currently 80 kilograms, so I would say between 150 and 160 for me. Um, and the average, let's say the average piece of salmon is between 20 and 30 grams of protein. The average chicken fillet is between 20 and 30 grams. Uh, a tub of Greek yogurt is around 20 grams. So it's very easy to hit your protein targets with some planning and, and working with the right people like what Carl is with Marcus. Carl, how much is your knowledge of food and nutrition changed over the years of your career because the you know there's things like where boxes and I know you've talked about in the past where you kind of eating crisps thinking that's part of certain grams you're smiling there and Derry Matthews what was it James you were saying would go for like a subway a day or something how much has it changed Carl for you and what are some of the things that you used to do it's changed it's changed massively and I think that the real reason for that was I I was always afraid of the scales. So rather than eating a couple of chicken breasts, which have much more nutritional value um, than a packet of crisps, I would eat a couple of packets of crisps because if I stood on the scales with chicken breasts in my hand or stood on the scales with a packet of crisps in my hands, I I would weigh lighter with the crisps for that instance. So um, I used to do things. I used to eat things that were crap, really bad just because they didn't weigh they didn't weigh much um and it sounds it's silly it really sounds stupid but it it was because i was constantly afraid of the scales i was probably as an amateur boxer anyway i was probably in a state of dehydration nice will sound extreme but 90 percent my life as a as a senior amateur boxer representing ireland um on, on quite a high level um afraid to drink water because I knew I was going to be getting on the scales that night, possibly or the next morning. So my, my, my nutrition and, and, and what I know about nutrition, it isn't, it isn't brilliant, but I, I know a lot more than, than I used to. Yeah. There's a lot that I can relate to there, Charlie as well, especially from the amateur scenes. I would go into a lot of the amateur gyms in Liverpool and it's exactly the same as what Carl said, that you've got young guys that are frightened of the scales, um, frightened to drink because they will equate a half a litre bottle of water as a half a kilo in the scales. And quite often, actually, a lot of my early work was just teaching young fighters how their weight fluctuates throughout the day. So, for example, you might wake up at 59 kilo, but you could go to bed at 61 kilo, but you wake, you wake up the next day at 59 kilo again. So it was just teaching them that how their, their weight changes throughout the day and it isn't always necessarily because they're getting fatter throughout the day. It could be it's water just, retention or something. Exactly. Is that the, almost yeah. like what you were saying, Carl, in terms of, you know, afraid to yeah. drink and being dehydrated? Literally afraid to to drink water. Um, 
if I knew I was getting on the scales and I would have always finished the session in a um, sauna suit for 10 minutes, and it's a fake weight really because it's just a dehydrated weight, but I do 10 or 15 minutes in a sauna suit at the end of the session to try and get a little bit lighter. So I'm not, I'm jumping on the scales and I'm not worried as much as I would have been if I hadn't done the sauna suit session. So, and then, but then you go, you get off the scales and you go home and you, you're eating more crap and, and drinking water and it just stays on you because you're dehydrated and your body, your body needs it. it it's interesting though, Carl. I, th- I think the sauna suit culture is changing in the sport. Would you agree? I, yeah, I would. Yeah. I, I know fighters who were constantly training in sauna suits for like their, their whole career, like their whole camp. They would always stick the sauna suit on, which, which is silly, really. Um, and I used to do it a lot, but I, I don't really do it now. I do it when I have to. Probably the only time I'd really wear a sauna suit is maybe day of the weigh-in if I have a little bit of weight to lose. Do you think you know you you James? You just said about boxing. You know the sauna suit maybe is kind of being filtered out. Do you think, Carl, that boxing has this reputation of being quite archaic in terms of sports nutrition and performance? Absolutely, and and not just not only nutrition, but strength and conditioning and, and and everything else and, and boxing is definitely a sport that's behind the times but um ho- hopefully some of the top guys in the in the world you look at some of the training that, that anthony joshua does and he posts and talks about it on online it's you know very clever stuff that he does and, and he's training the way he should be training but there's still elite fighters all over the world training the wrong way it's a sport that's still full of dinosaurs but slowly Slowly but surely, it's 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 changing and going the going the correct way. Because I think sometimes, um, yeah, I've been in boxing for a long time. It's a sport that you know that I I love and I've been close to. And and I think sometimes there is that perception because you see the likes of Anthony Joshua who is ripped and has the muscles tone, and then you see the likes of in the past Ricky Hatton, who's you know fantastic man but balloons and and then you we've seen the story of Tyson Fury um you know James what do you think in terms of comparing boxing and other sports well what I can't say Charlie and I'm sure this is coming across already but I think boxers for me first and foremost are fantastic people even before athletes but then as an athlete I don't think you'll find a harder working set of athletes across all of sport I've been fortunate to work in different sports and also test many different athletes. Pound for pound, they're the fittest athletes that I've ever um, worked with, both cardiovascularly on the strength side. And I think what what I really love about the sport is is they're willing to learn. It's not like they're set in their ways and oh, we've always done it this way. As you've just heard from Carl, Carl's a two weight world champion, but he's willing to learn. You know what I mean? He's always he's always willing to improve, and quite often. You see this a lot in professional football. A lot of players think they've already got it dialed and they're not willing to try new things. You you will never see that in a boxing gym, in my experience. Because mm. um, there's times, Carl, in the past, I remember, I think I was at one of your fights, I think it was in 2017, where you didn't actually make weight. You were only, I think, a pound off, off weight. You, yeah. you, I, I can tell you remember now because you of your face. Was it against Gutierrez? Yeah, it was- the only time I did I didn't make weight and not not to make excuses but there was a lot of things going on in my career at that point that I I wasn't happy with so um I think mentally I probably wasn't wasn't in the right in the right place and and that that's the reason why I I tried to make weight I was in a sauna trying like 
on my hands and knees, like um, got there within a pound, but I was really struggling. I was just dry as a bone, and I, mentally, I wasn't I wasn't in the right place, really. James, what does that? Yeah, what's that do to your body? Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Charlie, because uh, several years ago we published a research paper where we tracked a, an MMA fighter, and in the twenty four hours before weighing in, he lost ten percent of his body mass, which was seven kilograms. Now, this fighter then actually gave himself kidney injury, acute kidney injury. And a lot of mixed martial artists are actually retiring from the sport because of kidney damage. And it's because of the repetitive dehydration they're causing themselves with that acute weight cut. Thankfully, Carl's obviously progressed in the sport and he recognises that those dehydration episodes are just, they're not good for performance, but they're definitely not good for health. How much does dehydration affect performance? It's something that I'm very hot on. For those that don't know, I've got a, an injury, a kidney injury, not through, obviously, dehydration or through boxing, through um, a tropical disease. But it's something that I'm, I drink a lot of water for my kidneys. It really depends on the sport and the exercise session that you're about to do. But as a general rule of thumb, if you start training, let's say, more than 2% dehydrated, so 2% reduction in body mass from your normal weight, it's it's very likely that you'll have a poor training session and very likely that you'll suffer poor performance. Mm. Um, Carl, what do you do if you want a treat? Are you somebody, I think you've got a bit of a sweet tooth, right? Are you somebody that is really religious with it or is it good to have treats sometimes? Um, I, th- I think it's good to do it sometimes. What, what I like to do is, um, and I was granted permission of of my nutritionist marcus before before i um actually went about this but i was reading about them watching stuff on youtube about fasting um and does it affect weight and and can you benefit from it so i would also on a saturday say i had my last meal at around 7 p.m 7 30 i wouldn't eat again until maybe three or four on the sunday and I would do all my calories in one big meal, so like a big Sunday roast and maybe some dessert as well at the end. If it depends on how I feel and how how far away I am from the fight, but um, it it doesn't it doesn't affect my weight too much, and it always gives me something to look forward to. So it's not as if if I'm doing this every once a week. So you do it on the Sunday. You're not really thinking about eating crap Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. By Thursday, you're starting to feel it again, but you can see Sunday's very, very close. So um, it, it's just something that, that, that definitely worked for me. Yeah, and I think a, lo- a lot of our listeners can relate to that as well, Charlie, because it's hard to stay on a diet seven days out of seven and, and you need something to look forward to at the end of the week. And there's quite a, a good lot of research showing that it's actually of benefits. We heard from Geraint in the first episode that, if you push your weight too much every day, eventually bad things will happen. And having that reset day, if you want to call it that, is a nice term, is, is a good thing. Carl, you've mentioned Marcus a few times. How important is that relationship and how much has it improved your performance focusing on nutrition? It's been massive. So I've linked up with Marcus now probably the last sort of three years since he since came to Manchester anyway. And I think we, we have a great relationship. I, I trust him. I, he's very, very knowledgeable. He knows what he's talking about. And and he understands boxing a wee bit as well. Um, and he understands the game that I do. So it just it just works. It it really works. And 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 the the nutritional advice that he's given me, I, I just seem to have been making weight 
easier since um, I've teamed up with him. And now this this fight in particular is the easiest I've made weight. I haven't made weight yet, but I will make it. And it's I'm a, I'm closer now, way closer now than I normally am. Um, with five weeks ago. Yeah, what's the difference with that, Carl? Is that because you've had a little bit longer? Is that because of what you've actually been doing? Well, I, I, I suppose a bit of both, a little bit longer. Um, always doing an extra wee bit in sessions as well at the end, just maybe an extra 150, 200 calories. Um, I've been doing that you know, on the treadmill or whatever, just easy, easy calories. So um, maybe that's helped. But obviously this is a big fight for me. It's a huge fight and, and a lot of, motivation for me to become a three-weight world champion so maybe that's just give me the extra wee bit of incentive that not that i didn't need it you know what i mean but it just it just helps me a wee bit how are you feeling about it because we spoke so much <laughs> really in detail about about nutrition about the things you've been doing about your food and how are you feeling mentally mentally very very good um i'm a, i'm in the right place i'm in, i'm where i need to be physically i'm feeling good um my hand is better now i'm sparring well um, I'm feeling strong. Everything's kind of falling into place for me now, and I, and I genuinely believe that I'm going to win this fight. Like it's it's going to be a difficult fight, but I genuinely believe that I'm going to beat this guy and, and become a three weight world champion. Even the weight issue, you know, we've been talking about weight a lot. I'm going to make this weight easy. Jamel Herring, no matter what he says, kills himself to do the weight because it defies. It, it just defies logic that he can make the weight easy. He says he does. He's five foot ten. He's a, a brick shit house, if I can say that. And, and he says he makes the weight easy. I, I don't believe him. And, and I'll be getting there comfortable. And I'll be able to fight hard for 12 rounds if it, if it takes it. I don't think he will. I'll not get you into any of that trash talk. Um, <laughs> James, what can we take for those that maybe aren't familiar with boxing or, you know, aren't boxing? What can we take from boxing and from what Carl said to be able to put in our everyday health and performance? What are the main things? Well, first of all, Charlie, I'd go back to the mindset of a fighter um, and and just how much they achieve in a 12-week camp. I mean, again, going back to some of the fitness data that we've collected over the years, how fit they get in 12 weeks, how much fat they lose in 12 weeks, the shape they get themselves into is incredible. And I think a lot of the general population, when we go on our fitness journeys, we kind of lose interest after a few weeks. We we go, oh, it's a bit too hard today. We give up. We don't really want to train the way we did. But if you put yourself in that fighter mentality, you keep going and you keep going and you, you'll get there. What you can achieve in 12 weeks is incredible. From a nutritional perspective, there's loads that Carl's picked up, which I would call just world-class basics really delivered consistently well like regular feeds not too much of prolonged fasting um he mentioned before about his paleo diet years ago which is a low carbohydrate diet i don't believe you can be an elite athlete on a low carbohydrate diet carl's now training better than ever because he's not frightened of carbs he's using them to fuel his sessions so i think there's loads charlie from a nutritional perspective but i think the mindset one is really stands out for me Carl, what's the, what do you think is the most important thing for you that you could maybe relay to people? And everything takes time, I suppose. When when you want to go on, people like to do these kind of crash course stats and then they're looking instant results or maybe results in a, in a week, and that, that's just unrealistic, really. And it's not the correct approach. And it's a it's a it takes it takes me twelve weeks to get into shape to be ready to fight. So, but I think that twelve weeks is a good amount of time for anybody. 
to make changes to diet and training and lifestyle and and they will see with their own eyes and feel as well uh much better for it one thing I want to pick up on actually is because it's it's not necessarily normal for um an amateur athlete to to do 12 weeks and then is that health I don't know is it a healthy thing to do to maybe ease off training for a period of time is that what you do when you're not in camp so that then you can just focus on that 12 weeks to then go, go for a goal well I don't so this is something that I I do now and I didn't do it was like I knew I had a 12-week camp I knew I had a hard slog coming up I wasn't enjoying training because probably because of my nutrition and, and what I was taking in and the lightheadedness that I've talked about constantly happening. Um, so in between training camps, I done very, very little. But now I, I live like a professional athlete. Like I would have maybe a week off and let my body recover after a fight. But then I would start running and doing some weights. I stay on top of my strength and conditioning now um, as much as possible and just just not allow myself to balloon up to stupid weights. And then your 12-week camp is about making weight and losing weight rather than getting ready for a fight. How how important is that consistency, James, in training? Oh, it's massive. It's massive, um, especially with a younger athlete. I mean, I know Carl's older and much more experienced now, but a lot of younger athletes coming into sport, it, the foundations are so important and you just can't go missing in between fights because it'll it'll come back to haunt you later in your career consistency is king I think when it comes to sports science and and really delivering those podium performances so Carl James will never forgive me I bet he's been waiting for me to ask this question the whole time we've been talking right haven't you James <laughs> he'd never what's, forgive me if I don't that? mention Belfast <laughs> um, oh yeah we're, we're both uh, proud Belfast boys yeah, definitely you're both from Belfast so Carl how much has that influenced um, your work ethic and your attitude no, but of course it, it has influence. But you look at you look at boxers and good boxers throughout the world, and, and most of them come from similar sort of backgrounds to me. Where you have to really, you have to fight hard for any sort of success and anything you do. Not not only sport, really, but anything you do in life. And I, I I'm very very proud. Do you think that James has a lot to do with mindset? Definitely, I think um, Belfast is a it's a tough city. Like I think Carl would agree, and I think as a result it kind of builds that resilience in you from from an early age you, you you kind of grew up being tough and you kind of grew up getting on with things a couple of things about the boxing gyms that I thought was interesting now that Carl picked up is no matter where you go in the world the boxing gym is the most simple place to train now I've been in lots of professional football environments best of facilities glitz glamour but I, there's something magical about a boxing gym it's so pure and authentic it's just a punch bag and a ring and a few weights in the corner but the work ethic you see in that, and I think a lot of our listeners, especially during lockdown, Charlie, the gyms have closed. Everyone's kind of maybe feeling a bit sorry for themselves that they can't get fit. You don't need facilities to get fit. And you can just look at someone like Carl to remember that when you get up tomorrow morning. You can achieve what you want to achieve without fancy gyms. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're like community centers and that's what they're like. There's so, there's so many different people. You know, you've in, in Midland and in, in my amateur club in, in Tigers Bay, you've got sometimes me a former world champion training there alongside up and coming kids potential to become Irish champions then you've got guys who just like to keep fit and blow you know blow off a wee bit of steam and go and blot out of the bag for a while so there's all different shapes and sizes in the clubs and and they're more like 
the I would describe them as community centers, really. Just just people are, and sometimes people need a wee bit of help as well, and a wee bit, a shoulder to cry on, and, and someone to talk to. And boxing clubs are are amazing places. Real, they really, really are. How insightful was that, James? And I think what I love about Carl is you can really see how he's grown and his knowledge of nutrition has grown. Yes, absolutely, Charlie. I, I think it's worth highlighting, actually. I know from some feedback from episode one, the, the amount of varied listeners that we have tuning in. We've got professional athletes, coaches, sports scientists, and of course, people that are just starting out on their exercise journey. So I think everyone would take slightly different things from Carl's episode. Um, for the sports scientists that are listening, I think it's worth noting that Carl was very specific in saying how important the relationship is between the athlete and the sports scientist and how they should really know the sport. So I think the sports scientists could learn a lot from Carl's insights. From a nutritional perspective, what I thought was great was how much Carl has learned throughout the course of his career. And he seems to now have a much more healthier relationship with food. I think some of his early thoughts was almost being frightened of carbohydrate. He mentioned about almost feeling like really weak and lethargic. But thankfully now he's fueling his training better and he seems to really be enjoying himself a lot more in training, which is great to see. James, another thing I wanted to pick up quickly because we didn't actually talk about it in the recording. It was something that we spoke about when we'd all stopped recording and we were just having a bit of a natter. And Carl was like, oh, I wish I'd mentioned that. He talked about portion sizes and I wanted to pick it up with you because it actually made me think, yeah, I think that's something that, that we all uh, struggle on. Yes, that's an excellent point, Charlie. I think a lot of us probably know what we should be doing in terms of the types of food, maybe even the timing of when we should be consuming different foods. But the biggest mistake that we all make is the portion sizes. And Kyle was very specific when he spoke to us offline about the work that he's done with Marcus, his nutritionist, on educating him on the importance of the portion sizes. And that's probably one of the things that he's learned most over the last few years of his career. Have you got any tips on that? Well, when it comes to protein itself, um, I think Carl even mentioned this himself in his interview about having like 20 to 30 gram doses of protein. And that's pretty simple, really, because that's the equivalent of, of three eggs, um, a piece of chicken, a salmon fillet, a, a can of tuna, as an example. So it's very, very easy to get your protein dose correctly. It is perhaps harder for the carbohydrate portions, which we'll come on to later in future episodes. We'll pick up that next time then. <laughs> um, I think it'd be great to speak to Professor Stuart Phillips, actually. He's an expert in protein metabolism and has spent a large part of his career studying protein requirements for athletes. He's a professor at the School of Medicine at McMaster University in Canada, where he also heads up the Protein Metabolism Research Lab there. Stuart works heavily within the area of skeletal muscle health, and he's been noted to be one of the top 1% of all cited researchers globally. So he really is clued up in this area. Stuart, thanks so much for coming on. And James was saying to me, he was like, we need to get Stuart, we need to get Stuart, we need to get Stuart. So James, maybe you start, why was it so important for you to get Stuart's expertise? On. Yes. Well, I think if you think back to the athlete that we just spoke to, Charlie Carl Frampton, was interesting that he spoke about protein straight away in terms of his nutritional requirements. So that lends itself to bringing Stuart on because Stu, in my opinion, is a world leader in protein metabolism. So I was adamant that we had to get Stu to follow Carl's nutritional guidelines and, and let's try and really get into some of the science, but translate that to our listeners. Yeah, so there you go. I think that was a great introduction to you. Um, Stu, welcome along. Could you maybe start with just saying why protein is so important? Because we were speaking to Carl and he was saying how much his nutrition's changed and he now focuses on 
protein. And then there's always this conversation about carbohydrate, protein, I think. And then what is the right thing to do? And I think so much we lent on carbohydrate is the thing to fuel. Yeah. So I think that there's an important distinction. First of all, you know, thanks to, to James and yourself for having me on the show. Really, really a pleasure to be here. The big distinction I make with protein as opposed to say carbohydrates and fats is that carbohydrates and fats can be stored by our body and you know fat we have it's almost an unlimited capacity carbohydrates a little bit in liver a little bit in skeletal muscle uh, but protein is different it's a macronutrient that you can't you can't kind of stock it away there's not a little you know protein pool or bag into which you're going to put amino acids and use them later so uh, i think that that distinguishes it a little bit uh, from the other two macronutrients and makes it sort of a an, so it's really the truly the only nutrient i know we say we have daily needs but if you don't get protein on a day-to-day -day basis it is eventually going to add up and uh, result in some sort of decrement whereas the other two you can probably rely on stores before you you run into problems so how much is the thinking changed in a way? Because if you look at the 70s, 80s, and probably the 90s as well, the conversation was about fueling in carbohydrate, and especially amongst elite athletes. Now it seems to be tipping the other way. So I'm not sure where it really changed. And my indoctrination into the you know, sports science area was, you know, I would go to meetings and the first, you know, seven symposia were about carbohydrate and how to maximize its storage and I think that that was a big deal. I think that that's sort of tilted back in the opposite direction now with realizing that people who aren't as active could do with less carbohydrate or the capacity of people maybe to adapt to a, a lower carbohydrate, higher fat diet. And then protein was always this sort of third, yeah, yeah, you know, we need a little bit of that. But now we've begun to accumulate evidence to show that it's... Um, the need for protein actually is uh, quite a bit greater than most people would think. And it actually plays a pretty important role in modulating the balance of lean mass, so muscle mass predominantly, um, in weight loss scenarios. What about for you, James? Because um, I know we were having a conversation about the Tour de France and how the first bottle on the bike of nutrition was actually protein, not carbohydrate. Yeah, well, I guess if we take a step back, Charlie, I've been working with athletes and analyzing athletes' diets for almost 20 years or so. And when I think back to the early days, it, it very much was for me a carbohydrate focus. And usually we were trying to correct the athletes' diets because they were under consuming protein. 20 years later, I think it's actually flipped. The first thing that they tend to get correct now is protein. And perhaps they're now under consuming carbohydrate. So I guess we need to flip the balance back. I think a lot of that shift in culture, credit to Stu, I think his laboratory in particular has, has showed athletic populations that we do need more protein for recovery, especially. We need it to grow muscle, but for the endurance athlete, we don't necessarily need it to grow muscle, we need it to maintain muscle. And if you remember that we had Geraint Thomas in episode one, and Geraint's first words to us was he had just finished a six-hour low-carb ride. Now, on a six-hour low-carb ride, you are going to degrade your own muscle protein stores. You're effectively eating into your muscle for energy. So that's a real simple example of why endurance athletes in particular would need more protein. So could you almost like normalize it for us in a sense of how much protein should we be having? Is there a difference between a male athlete and a female athlete in the protein? But what about for an everyday exerciser as well? 
Right. So it's at this point where I need to throw numbers out and, and, and they get quite confusing. So I'll, I'll sort of try and give you some equivalent examples. But the recommended dietary allowance in Canada and the United States or the recommended nutrient intake, the RNI in the UK, uh, is at about 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. So if you divide that out, it's about 0.4, 0.3 grams of protein per pound. You wake up in the morning, you have a couple of eggs, you drink a glass of milk, you have uh, maybe some tuna fish at lunch, and then you know some chicken at dinner, you're going to cover your protein requirements at 0.8, more than recover them for most people. We think that there's are benefits associated with consuming it about twice that, so about 1.6. So now we're getting into the sort of 0.5 to 0.6 grams of protein per pound. In a really extreme example where you're in a low energy availability, you're really pushing yourself hard, it could go up to as much as 2.2 grams per kilo or the, the nuclear one gram per pound, which is, you know, depending on how you like to talk about these things. And that requires a, a specific mindset, I think, where athletes have to begin to focus on getting protein at just about every meal. From that standpoint, you're right. I, I think people have maybe been led to believe that they're protein deficient. I don't think that that's true. I think that it's definitely a situation where the low number, so 0.8, could probably satisfy people's minimal need. What it doesn't do, in my opinion, is make sense to consume more, which would be optimal. So it's the difference between meeting a minimal need and then an optimal requirement. And the two really aren't the same. So that's the, the important distinction. And how much protein can your body actually use though? Uh, so and you use the right word and you said use. And so we published a paper a number of years ago showing that uh, for young men who had just performed some heavy resistance exercise, only 20 grams of protein, which isn't much. Like, I mean, that's 500 milliliters of you know low fat or skimmed milk. Um, which is about 18 grams of protein, was sufficient to maximally stimulate the rate of synthesis of new muscle proteins. The main point was then people said, your body can only absorb 20 grams. And, and that's not true. Your, your body can absorb a lot of protein, you know, hundreds of grams. What it can't do is use it. And as I said, you know, you have no way of storing amino acids. You have to use them in the time that they're given. So if you consumed 100 grams of protein and it were good, high quality protein, your body would digest and absorb most of that. What it would do with it is no much more than if you'd ingested, say, 25 to 30 grams. So the other X number of grams is sort of, uh, people call it wasteful, but there's no sufficient use of it that it uh, would, would make any difference and I think that that's the key point. Yeah I, I guess at this stage Charlie it's worth thinking about the total daily intakes of an athletic population versus a sedentary population or a non-active population and what Stu has really covered so far is that for anyone who's doing exercise whether that's hard endurance exercise or who's trying to gain muscle then it's very likely that they need two to three times more protein than the average person who's doing no exercise. It can be quite easy to under-consume, but it can also be quite easy to over-consume. 
No, exactly. And, and I mean, it's, you know, of all the three nutrients that most people have in their diet, it's usually carbohydrates is the majority, fat is a little bit lower, and protein is the lowest. So, you know, grams of protein plus or minus can make a quite a big difference in your total overall intake. I think one of the key things that we have contributed, and it's not just our work, lots of other uh, good friends and colleagues as well, uh, would be that if you have to use protein when it's immediately consumed, it does make some sense to focus on getting protein at every eating opportunity. So most people look at breakfast and it's a very carbohydrate rich meal, et cetera. Um, but we like to say, you know, try and get some protein at breakfast. So it's, it's okay to eat an egg. Eggs are I don't know where they sit in the in the UK these days, but in North America they're off they're off the dirty list. Uh, so we can eat an egg, and you can drink milk. And various yogurts have been the sort of go to for a lot of athletes to say, you know, there are higher protein versions of yogurts as well that I think is a good breakfast food. So I eat eggs. Just put my hand yeah. up there. So it's on <laughs> the, it's on the good list. I eat eggs and I drink milk, and I always have done. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Um, you said about the spread almost. Carl was talking about that in terms of spreading the protein out over the day. Yes. So Stu, Carl was, um, he's training for another world title fight. And so he was taking us through his daily nutritional intake. And he actually works with Marcus Hannon. And it was pretty clear that Marcus had taught Carl about the importance of spreading his protein intake because he was very um, clear in saying, I need two grams per kilogram and I need it every three hours, which I thought was really interesting. Now, Years ago, Charlie, when you look at athletes' diets, as Stuart just said, typically they would under-consume at breakfast time. Very little protein was consumed at breakfast because they were thinking about fueling rather than actually having protein. Another time they would probably lack a lot of protein was before bedtime, which is now another important feeding point. But they were always pretty good at consuming it after training. And so then the pattern of protein intake throughout the day tended to favour that post-training period, as opposed to that even distribution throughout the 24 hours. On that, I think that's something that's in the mainstream media as well, in terms of that thing where you take your protein or you take your protein shake after training. Just hearing you talk about it then, it's not something you think of, it's almost like train, quick get your protein in because then that mends your muscles and then crack on. Yeah, and I think that that sort of you know, people, there's various terms for it, but uh, post-exercise, quote-unquote, anabolic window. There's a little bit of truth to that in that uh, your muscle, like it is with carbohydrate as well, is very receptive to uh, storing carbohydrate right after exercise. And that's also the time when your muscle is is sensitive to the effects of protein. I think the major difference would be that the the window, as some people have called it, um, not, you know, it's recently been referred to uh, by a, a group in the U.S. more as the garage door or the garage door. Sorry to use your vernacular, uh, <laughs> is open for a long time. So it's big. Like the people who carry the shaker bottle around the gym, you know, I always get a little chuckle out of that. So it, it, those are the people who have been indoctrinated in the school of thought that the window of opportunity to repair and restore and everything your muscles is only you know 30 minutes or whatever and and it's probably closer to about 24 hours but if you're training every day then it's like you know anytime you eat protein becomes the window of opportunity because your muscles are always 
basically saying, okay, give me, give me the amino acids. We need to repair, we need to remodel, we need to get ready for the next workout. So, you know, your guest, Carl, like I can't imagine that, you know, leading into this, he's really taking a day off. So he's, he's going hard every day, obviously tapering into the fight, um, but he would need to have the protein. And so I'm glad to, it always warms my heart to hear practitioners who, you think, you know, is my work having any effect? And then when people say, okay, I'm doing this, you're like, ah, oh, that's awesome. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I guess the, the point to really hammer home there, Charlie, is absolutely it is important to consume protein after exercise because it can help with recovery. But it's also important to continue that protein intake throughout the rest of the day. So it's not like you just have your protein after your training session and then forget about it carry on taking advantage of those other feeding opportunities throughout the day to give yourself the best chance of recovering, um, growing muscle if that's one of your goals or maintaining muscle if that's one of your goals. Quite often we see athletes make the mistake that they just focus on that post-exercise window and then forget about the rest of the day. Um, Yes. (laughs) I feel like I've just been schooled basically for the last 10 minutes because I've definitely done that a lot and probably still do. So Yes, thank you. Never mind our listeners. I've just learned quite a lot. Um, And I thought I had quite a good education on nutrition. So what about the difference in plant and animal protein, which I think is so important to bring up, especially now more than ever, because I think a lot of people's diets are changing. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think the fundamental truth is that uh, plant-based proteins are lower quality than animal-based proteins and and, you know that's just the the biological reality Uh, you know you'd have asked me this two months ago and I would would have had to say well we're not really sure but um, you know recently we published a paper uh, in collaboration with a fellow named Hamilton Rochelle who was uh, he's actually at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil uh, that at least in novice trainers as long as you get up to a protein intake of we got them to 1.6 so the double the RDA or the RNI that I talked about. And we had vegan athletes, but we also supplemented them with, with soy protein as a, as a powder. And they gained the same amount of muscle as omnivorous athletes. So from my perspective, you know, being, if you're a vegetarian or if you're vegan, if you're vegan, it's a little bit of a tougher proposition. You just have to be a little bit judicious about how you plan your diet. And you have to focus on getting some, I think, higher quality plant sources. So, you know, now, as opposed to even five or 10 years ago, you have soy powder, you have pea protein, you have rice protein, you have a lot of protein powders that didn't even exist previously, except maybe soy, uh, that you can choose to sort of make up the difference if that's what you're worried about. If you want to do it with a food first approach, it really does require you to, to be very, I think, very smart about your nutrition. Probably you're going to have to work with a professional if you're at the top end. But, you know, the number of plant-based or plant-driven athletes is, uh, is at an all-time high. I mean, we're beginning to see more and more of them at the very top levels of sport. Uh, so, you know, proof that at least that you can, uh, if you're the right individual and you're judicious about how you plan your protein, that you can do it with a plant-based exclusively or a, a lacto-ovo milk, eggs, uh, vegetarian-style diet. And um, it, it's no longer that it's – I don't think that there's any evidence, at least in my books, to say that it's inferior or it's going to limit what you're going to do. 
but it's a bit more difficult. Something that I'm actually quite interested in, Charlie, which would be good to talk about also is the role of protein before sleep. Because oh, a lot of people. I was going to have... ask you about that with a story about Hugh Jackman. So basically, what I was going to say about that, Hugh Jackman. I hope I've got this right. When he was training, I presume it was for um, his role as Wolverine. Uh, he basically took protein just before he went to sleep. And the reason why I know that is because when I did my first Ironman, I copied. Is <laughs> <laughs> that really sad? I um, did took protein and took a protein shake literally as I was going to sleep. So carry on, James, so I can get my little anecdote in. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm glad to see that you've been thinking about Hugh Jackman before you went to sleep, Charlie. <laughs> I need to drink a protein shake. <laughs> so as I was saying, um, yeah, when you look at some of the athletes' diets, I mean, we published a paper in the Liverpool players a few years ago, actually. They were pretty good at hitting their protein targets with the exception of going to sleep. And there's been lots of research in the last, Five years or so, would you say, Stu, really showing the benefits of protein before sleep, especially for muscle growth, which, of course, is what Hugh Jackman was trying yeah, to achieve. He was like way ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, if you imagine your muscle is a wall, uh, you, when you eat protein, it's like you're putting bricks into the wall. But then when you're not eating protein in between meals, even you actually take bricks out of the wall. And it's like a sort of a constant maintenance of the wall. It's as if you're saying, you know, where are the bad bricks? OK, we got to take those. out. OK, let's put the new bricks in. And so the wall stays in good shape or it's like stripping down your engine and rebuilding it at the same time. But, but that only happens when you eat protein. And the effect only lasts for as long as you have the amino acids from the protein in your bloodstream. So you eat a breakfast and then it wanes and then you eat at lunch and then it's stimulated and then you eat again at dinner. And it was always, you know, at the end of the day, people say, what happens then? And I said, well, actually, that's a that's when you sleep. And so you're not eating. And actually, so there's more bricks coming out of the wall while you're sleeping than going in. So, you know, wind the clock back, let's say about 20 years and talk to bodybuilders who cared about the last gram of tissue, muscle tissue that they had, they would say, oh, I set my, my, my watch, my alarm for to go off every four hours. And even if when I sleep, I, I wake up and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll eat a chicken breast or something. And I always thought that's crazy. Like who, who, you know, I say who does that, but clearly people did it. Then, you know, Q, a good friend of mine, uh, Luke Van Loon, who James knows well, and uh, he started saying, you know what? makes a lot more sense to try and tuck in an extra feed just before you go to sleep. So you do get that stimulation. It might not last the whole time, but it's going to offset some of those losses that you would have overnight. And to a degree, uh, and again, we're learning so much now about sleep and what it does to sports performance, but sleep is a time of regeneration, repair, uh, restoration, which is really, you know, those are all the adjectives I use to describe what protein does for your muscle and other tissues. Um, here's a newsflash for your readers. You know, one of the things people talk about is the protein causes your bones to get soft. It makes them easier to fracture. And I said, actually, your bone is 40% by mass protein. So you need protein for your bone. It's not just a stick of chalk. So, you know, we're remodeling all kinds of protein-containing structures when we, when we sleep. Your skeleton is one, uh, your muscles are another, but tendons, ligaments, everything. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really good point, Charlie, for the listeners to take away, because everyone thinks the protein is just for muscle. 
but it's it's much more important than that because there's lots of things in our bodies that need protein to function correctly. And so it's much more important than just a muscle focus. It's all of our organs, all of our tissues require these amino acids to function optimally. I think that is a really good point because I think it is seen as just something that's for muscle recovery. Um, on that, do you think we need, or is there evidence that we need more protein as we get older then? Yeah, uh, well, as the older statesman on the call, I'll say definitely. As you get older, you actually begin to, from a nutritional perspective, your physiology becomes a little less sensitive to the effects of nutrients. And so you have to either take more of those nutrients or do something to sensitize it. So, you know, I borrow a quote from a, a very successful ager guy named Jack Lane, and every everybody has one, but you know, Jack was a guy who was talking about fitness in the 1950s, wearing a spandex jumpsuit and moving around and doing incredible feats of strength. But also, uh, he said that, you know, your nutrition's got to be good. So his quote goes, you know, uh, exercise is king and nutrition is queen and together they're a kingdom. Uh, and I think for most older people, if you could put those two together along with, and I've begun to get a greater appreciation and the pandemic has really hammered at home uh, about social support, what it means. And so eat right, exercise right, be supported socially. And, and actually, you'll age really well. Uh, I think most people... I uh, would do fine if that were the the formula they used. I really like that, the way of saying that as well, because I think it's so easy to understand. It's great. And wh- while we've got you, we've touched upon, you know, aging and protein um, and recovery and a little bit about sleep. But do you have any like training advice general for people in terms of nutrition or in fact, just in general, in every day? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably a lot generically like a lot of other things. Um, I like to say that uh, food is the best medicine you're ever going to take. So if you can do it with a food first approach and try and choose, it's always, you know, the same sort of thing. Fruits and vegetables are are a no loss proposition in my mind. Carbohydrates, if you're going to eat them, make them whole grains. And uh, I'm a big fan of dairy. I know it's controversial. I'm also good with eggs. But I also, you know, people talk about a low carb approach and uh, like, I, I like bread. You know, I like, I like bread. pasta. I don't like butter. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I always sort of <laughs> joked on somebody who said that I'm on a low carb, high fat diet. I said, like, so what do you eat when you go to an Italian restaurant, you know? <laughs> but uh, there's something that's been lost, I think, a little bit with food and that's the, the, the celebratory aspect of it and, and, the, and the delight in making food. And, and food has been boiled down to nutrition which is, you know, and it is clearly functional, but there's something to be said for sitting down with friends and having a good, enjoyable meal. So um, I've yet to find a place, and I'm, I'm quoting a friend of mine, he said, I've yet to find a place for alcohol in the uh, the, the four macronutrients. Uh, he said, but I'm trying really hard. <laughs> so I think there are times for it and uh, celebration after an event, for example, uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of athletes are, uh, they flaunt the line in the opposite direction. Some of them don't drink it at all. Um, but I, I, there's probably a role for it in celebration, but just the simple enjoyment of food and, um, and, and how that fits into the lexicon of all of the choices that we get to make. Yeah. The only thing that I would add, Charlie, actually, in terms of, of take home advice and Stu's done a lot of this research himself is quite often when we think of exercise, a lot of us think of endurance exercise. That's what you need to do to stay healthy. But actually, as you get older, we should be incorporating more strength training. 
Because if you think of it, you, you look at your parents or your grandparents and they struggle to get off the couch. Actually standing up becomes harder as they get older. And if, if they just had have incorporated one or two more strength sessions in their 40s, 50s and 60s, they would have so much more functionality as they get older. Now, I'm quite, I'm not in my 40s yet, Stu, but rest assured, I'm going to attack my 40s full gas to make, to make sure that I hit my 50s in good shape. <laughs> Protein really is such an important topic to understand. I think it gets a lot of press for being such a hero for muscle growth. But really, I think there's a gap in general knowledge about it and less understood than the role of carbohydrates. So it's been great to set the record straight with Stuart. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Charlie, actually. I think it's been great to clear up the myth that protein is only for strength athletes and that it's only required to build muscle because we've just heard that endurance athletes also need protein. We've heard that athletes involved in weight loss sports definitely need more protein because they're trying to maintain their muscle, like Carl Frampton as the example. So, um, So it's been really great to clear up that myth that it is only about building big muscles. I love the conversation as well, James, about aging and how important it is that we get enough protein as we get older and you know the thing that now I keep thinking about is the garage door reference or garage door (laughs) reference because I religiously in the last race that I did and I've always done this make sure I eat protein within half an hour of training and I probably focus so much on that but not enough during the day. Yeah, that's a great point, Charlie. I think most people involved in exercise at one level or another are pretty familiar with the concept that we should have protein after training to try and help with recovery. But I often see athletes making mistakes in that they then forget about protein the rest of the day. Um, So really what we want to try and get across is absolutely consume protein after training, but also consume it throughout the rest of the day, especially before sleep with your main meals, with your snacks in between main meals. And if you do that, you'll give yourself the best chance of of really recovering well from, from training. James, I just before we close, I want to touch upon the aging side of things because I think that's really, really important. Yes, it, it's massive, Charlie. I mean, this this really is the the area where sports science can impact not just elite athletes, but everyday people. And when it gets into that aging population, what I would definitely say is yes, consume more protein, but also try and engage in strength training because just one or two sessions per week in your 40s, your 50s and your 60s will definitely set you up for a much more high quality life in your later life. So definitely consume protein, but please, please lift some weights as well. Yeah, I think we tend to focus on cardio when we get older. Thanks, James. That was really important. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode. So in the meantime, check out Science in Sport across all socials at Science in Sport. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.